6 o'clock. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by www.livinglies.wordpress.com, GTC Honored, and The Garfield Firm, serving all 50 states with news and analysis of the latest bank scams against borrowers, homeowners, consumers, and investors, and providing legal representation throughout Florida. This program is for general information only. It is not a solicitation for services or legal representation and should never be used as a substitute for advice from a licensed professional. And now, here's world-renowned financial expert, attorney, and blogger, Neil Garfield. Hey, this is Neil Garfield. And this is Thursday, November 16th, 2017. If my voice is weak, pardon me, I'm getting over a flu that does not want to get over me. Uh, Tonight we answer your questions about rescission, motions, orders, and discovery strategies in civil litigation and foreclosures in particular. Follow the instructions you received when you called in, and you will appear on my dashboard with a question mark, and I will uh, uh, link you in. Uh, The questions will be answered in the order that they come in. We have uh, 30 minutes talk uh, show time, which means 28 minutes talk time. Tell me the status of your case and ask one question. That'll start in a moment. I'm broadcasting live from Duval County, Florida, and Charles Marshall is broadcasting as co-host from San Diego, California, brought to you by the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, (coughs) Lending Lies, Amgar, and the Garfield Firm with offices in Florida. And this show is specially brought to you because of donations to the Living Lies blog from listeners like you. Thank you. And for those of you who are not yet contributors, we ask that you hit the donate button on the blog or dial 202-838-6345. That is our main number and not the number uh, to to dial into this show and pledge whatever you think you can afford. If this show has value for you, if our work has value for you, then please make a contribution to help us continue helping you and all consumers. So all the details of foreclosure litigation (coughs) are mind-boggling to lay people, to say the least, and even to many lawyers who don't have a lot of experience in litigation. Here's something to remember. Litigation is the civil procedure by which we resolve disputes in this country. It is the procedure and the rules of civil procedure govern as long as they don't violate constitutional protections in the United States Constitution. So the main 
thing to think about is what procedures are available and how do I use them. <coughs> the first thing is not to describe what dirty, rotten cowards the banks are. That is a procedure. When you get to trial, then you can talk about the facts of the case. But there are motions where you can raise actual issues. But they need to be specific issues that a judge can easily follow. Everything else is procedure. And you learn about procedure by reading the rules of civil procedure and by reading cases that interpret those rules. Here to, me, to, talk, here to talk with me about the issues we confront in litigation is Charles Marshall. Welcome, Charles, again as co-host. Uh, absolutely, Neil. Always good to be on. And always good to have you. So I'm going to be leaning on you heavily here because my voice is not that strong and I have an urge to cough. Um, no, understood. Uh, let's start off with you talking about uh, Hernandez and Lopez. Uh, these are both recent cases. In fact, Lopez was decided literally a couple of days ago on November 14th. Now, these are both judicial foreclosure cases where the defendant in these cases brought the appeal and both of these cases were brought in the second district of Illinois. Uh, they, interestingly enough, were brought by the same attorney. Uh, his name is Dan Quaja. I'm, I'm not giving him a plug. I'm, I'm simply acknowledging that he did, a, he did an excellent job, clearly, in these cases to move the needle more where it needs to be moved on behalf of consumers. And these types of wins, because they're not that frequent, I mean, our side absolutely needs to celebrate them. And that's, that's, one, of, uh, that's one of the pieces we're doing right now. So we will have Dan on a future show, but for now, I can, I can give a bit, bit of a breakdown. Both appeals related to underlying FHA notes. In other words, the, the consumers in, in both of these uh, lower court lawsuits, you know, and of course the lower court lawsuits lost, then it was taken up on appeal by Dan. Uh, the, uh, the fact of an FHA note, you know, Federal Housing Association, that was, that was at, at issue in both cases. And then HUD, you know, the Department of Housing and Urban Development, they essentially control and, and literally often ultimately possess these FHA notes. In fact, what HUD does to incentivize there's a couple things going on here from a, from a public pol policy point of view. On the one hand, the FHA and, and, and HUD are kind of stepping in to give support to lower income borrowers, typically, not exclusively, but that's, that's what you'll sometimes see in, in these types of situations. I don't know, but that's the factual situation here. Uh, however, the bottom line is, FHA loans are often taken out 
in conjunction with, uh, you know, some kind of a government program directed to, to, to certain qualified borrowers. And once that happens, on the one hand, there's government oversight and kind of government intervention. On the other hand, the idea also is to bring in potentially private lenders, private servicers to actually effectuate the actual loans. And, you know, those parties came in here uh, to take over these notes early on, private parties. And then HUD has another program to incentivize transfer of these notes back to HUD itself so that HUD would ultimately hold the note, be in possession of the note, have some enforcement mechanism related to that. And they actually incentivize the private servicers and the the nominal institutional trustees, as I call them. They incentivize them to, to transfer the notes to HUD by creating uh, insurance benefits that can only be claimed by the nominal trustee and or their servicer if those institutional people actually transfer the note back to HUD. At that point, they can collect on certain insurance benefits related to basically shoring up that the the loan balance will be covered if the if the consumer if the you know the nominal borrower defaults. So, so what happened in these cases? Yeah. So what happened here is that there was documentation, you know, well developed by Dan to show that, and I'm sure he had to ferret all this out and probably pull it out of discovery after who knows how many rounds of that. And so he's able to establish that HUD did take possession of these notes and they took possession of these notes by assignment prior to these foreclosures being initiated. So on one of the cases, uh, that's the Hernandez case. That was the earlier appeal, which was decided October 12th. And that case, there was, there's a HUD regulation tied into everything I've been talking about. Uh, there was a standing issue that, of course, is wrapped up in all of this. I mean, it's a, simply a common-sense, logical argument that if HUD ends up with possession and legal rights to the note, of course the private parties who transfer that interest would have no more enforcement rights. However, in Hernandez, the court still found that the private interest had standing to pursue foreclosure but on the HUD regulation end, they shut down what what those servicers and, and uh, nominal trust holders were trying to do. So it, the bottom line is it's still a win for the consumer. And then in the Lopez case, it was an outright win. And what I mean by outright win is there it was found that there wasn't even standing on the part of the, part of the private parties precisely because all interested bid transferred to HUD. So how can those private parties then proceed with foreclosure when they'd already transferred the interest? And again, the movement of these assignments, the, the, the delegation of the authority, you know, the, the slipshod, and I haven't read the opinions deep enough to, to ferret this out, but I believe bogus powers of attorney 
at issue in these cases, you add that all up, and you've got another snow job that was directed at consumers, and yet this time, this time the court clipped their wings. Uh, it's how it should be, and it's great to get this, you know, this information out to our listeners. Is this the case where the court said uh, that you have to transfer the debt? In other words, along along with the note, along with the mortgage, along with the security, whether you're in a judicial or non-judicial foreclosure state, I right. think that's that's a question I would have I would have Dan weigh in uh, at a future show. I can't really speak to that specifically. Okay. I think, and one of the issues here, of course, is going to be, you know, to what extent are these holdings going to be transferable? to other cases, whether those cases are in judicial foreclosure states like Illinois or whether they're in non-judicial foreclosure states like California. And that I think that's a question for a future show. I think there's no question that the principle that we talk about all the time, at least that, was established here. And, and how much traction and how much utility we can get out of that remains to be seen. There's no question that here the, the, the court said, look, HUD is the possessor, possessor of interest here. They have the title interest here. So once that assignment is made, these private interests can't continue to, to foreclose and continue to go on as if they haven't already transferred their interest. And of course, we see all the time where the private parties are assigning interest where the new party for it could be any one of 20 reasons should have a void interest because the entity didn't exist when the the transfer was was uh, made in fact one of these cases uh there was an issue with with countrywide and essentially countrywide was trying to transfer the interest later i believe from one of the opinions it was four years later and of course, Bank of America had controlled their interest, you know, years earlier. So that came up in one of the assignment issues. But the fundamental issue was HUD had already taken the interest, therefore the private players couldn't proceed. I mean, theoretically, this should apply in a lot of context. My fear is that courts in California and some other places are going to say, well, these kinds of assignment defects. Sure, they make the transaction voidable, but not void. Here, the court did the right thing, and that's a plus. Okay, so let me add then uh, for our listeners that um, I received two cases in the last couple of days uh, that I've blogged on. I'm not sure if they've been published yet. Um, one, it was a HELOC case, a home equity line of credit, where the judge found that the note is not a negotiable instrument because there's no defined principle on the note. It could rise, it could it could go down, it could be zero, it could be the full amount uh, under the credit line. And therefore, they have to prove the debt. And the other case, was is is very recent over the last few days, and I thought it was it might have been one of the cases you were mentioning, but 
maybe not, uh, where the court found that the mere existence of a piece of paper that says it's an assignment or an endorsement is not proof of the prima facie case of somebody trying to enforce. There has to be an actual transfer of the debt, the underlying debt, because the debt is separate and distinct from the paper. The paper is supposed to describe the debt. <clears throat> so in the absence of the transferee or assignee or the receiver of an endorsement, uh, which is, as we've seen a million times, different from a receiver of possession, the debt has to be transferred to the party seeking to enforce. <coughs> and if the party who can enforce because of that wants a third party to do so, they can uh, definitely appoint them to do that, but they have to do so formally. So the question, for example, in discovery, is do you own the note, and if so, uh, if you're not the, the plaintiff in a judicial foreclosure or the beneficiary in a non-judicial, who did you empower to foreclose and how? And that question is going to come up more and more because the courts are looking at the difference between the actual debt, the money, the money chain, as I've referred to it, and the paper chain. <coughs> Sorry about my coughing. So, no, you, you okay, I got a bunch of people a little bit, on the dashboard. I got a bunch of people on the dashboard here, but nobody has put up a question mark. <coughs> so, um, we can continue uh, uh, filling the time uh, with a discussion of, and uh, I, I'm always dealing with this, <clears throat> what's the advice to lawyers who are looking to get into the area of foreclosure defense? Well, I think the shortest answer to that is ideally have a deep background in financial services. If you don't have a deep background in financial services, have an acumen where math is your friend. And, you know, I don't, I don't say these either casually or glibly. I'm not saying that it's impossible for an attorney who's not math friendly or who doesn't have a deep financial services background to do this type of law, I am saying quite sincerely that absent that background, it, it can be very difficult treading. Uh, and, and the reason for that is quite simple. If you can't analyze these documents yourself and, and break down the complex financial assignments, 
and all the ways in which the the legalities that should be there really aren't there, then it becomes very difficult to get in front of a judge in any kind of a hearing, whether it's a demure, whether it's a trial, even when you're deposing one of the defendant officers at, at, at one of these nominal trusts, if, if you don't have the, the ability to break down the complex financial pathways and numbers related to these types of cases, it can become really difficult to make the proper arguments to expose what's going on with, 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 uh, with these uh, situations. Yeah, you have to... You have to believe in what in what you're doing. You have to know why your client should win and why the other side should lose. There has to be a premise and there has to be a narrative. Right, and you have to really be ready for a dog fight, a big fight, however you want to frame it. This is absolutely an area of, of you know, litigation itself is is putting yourself in the middle of controversy and putting yourself in the middle of, of a constant jousting with attorneys on the other side. This particular area absolutely subjects you to that. So you, you almost have to thrive in a confrontational environment. And again, I, I don't say that casually. I'm, I'm quite sincere about that. To be effective, you have to always be in the side, uh, you know, on the side of, of, of your consumer and in the face of the other party. Because look, what I what I see too often with foreclosure attorneys uh, is that they just want to coast along. But I think that's true of attorneys in general. I think that's true of professionals in general. I think that's true of people in general. I think unfortunately we live in a society where people will go along to get along all too readily, and you've got to be a bit of a troubadour to make these cases work. You know, it you 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 can take cases especially just strictly speaking on the homeowner bill of rights. And you can just float them along. You know, I'm talking about California cases here where, the, where, you, where you're talking about plaintiff's uh, cases. That's where the homeowner bill of rights applies here in California. And, yeah, you might be able to get the case back by, by on demure there, but you're not going to get any settlement value. And you're, you're going to be constantly on the defensive unless you sell your client down the river. And I, I just can't support that approach. And I think there's too much of a tendency in today's world yeah. for people to, to kind of float float the minimum and then take the next case. Um, yes. But one, we do have one a question also... that came in uh, okay. by email, as notified. Uh, questioner says she is in California, a non-judicial state, and she has received a summons and complaint for unlawful detainer. She filed an answer and affirmative defenses alleging that plaintiff did not legally acquire title. The other side is moving to strike her affirmative defenses on the basis that the sale already occurred and there's nothing she can do about it in an unlawful detainer action. What do you say to that? You're California. Well, I would say that procedurally when you're subjected to an unlawful detainer in California, you almost always have some window where, wherein you can file a motion to quash. And there's almost always a legal basis for filing a motion to quash. Uh, 
clearly there could be a scenario where you don't have a legal basis for filing a motion to quash. I can't get into, you know, every contingency and every elaborate detail, but generally there's enough legal basis to file a motion to quash. That'll buy you critical time when you're sued in an unlawful detainer. And then you could also file a demurrer, which, again, there's, there's parties on the other side are going to say, well, you're, you're milking the system, you're abusing legal process. No, you're not. Uh, demurrer is actually... The state of California imposed on attorneys uh, last January a, a rule whereby if you're going to file a demurrer, you have to meet and confer with the other side, and you have to go into great detail about the basis for your demurrer. But guess what? They exempted unlawful detainer cases specifically, and to some extent what are called limited cases, meaning $10,000 or less is at issue, but they specifically exempted unlawful detainer cases. And I can guarantee you the reason for that is when, when, when the people in Sacramento were making this decision, they decided, no, we're not going to put this on, on unlawful detainer uh, defendants when they have so many other things to deal with. They're, you know, they're, they're potentially going to get evicted from their home. No, we're not going to say that they have to, to meet and defer with the other side to, to explain and justify why they filed a mirror. So, yes, demurs can be filed, too. Again, I'm not saying every single one would be valid or, or within the rules, but there are ones that could be within the rules. That by itself, doing a motion to question demur is going to buy you up to a couple of months' time. And then when you file your answer and your affirmative defenses, you're going to have more time to prepare them. You, you, you can also file a plaintiff's lawsuit, meanwhile, and then seek to consolidate the unlawful detainer case into that plaintiff's lawsuit. I mean, that's your best shot, because what happens here is... The plaintiff's lawsuit would be a wrongful foreclosure? Yes, precisely, and it would address the same types of title issues, and for quiet title, typically. It would address the, the same types of title issues that are, are really at play in the unlawful detainer, because what, what, the reason they're putting a motion to strike in, in, in this particular individual's case is they're saying, look, this UD is, is – we're only, we're only going to take a summary look at title. We're not really looking at title in any great depth. Unlawful detainers are meant to be summary proceedings. So it's true. They won't really look at title. But guess what? If you file a plaintiff's lawsuit and then file a motion to consolidate, all, all of a sudden, you know, the other side is going to say, well – you know, look, title's already decided. Why, why do you want a deeper look at title? We're on the unlawful detainer side here. Uh, we, you know, we've already established that title is, is valid based on doing a trustee deed upon sale. It's not even absolutely required in the unlawful detainer that you present a trustee deed upon sale. I've seen, I've seen cases where the plaintiffs have won without even filing a trustee deed upon sale, which frankly is outrageous because there's not even a recorded document confirming confirming the legitimacy of the sale. But yes, everything's decided at a summary level and the the defendant in these, these UD cases has very little wiggle room to get the judge to really look at the facts. And if you want the judge to look at the facts, your best hope, and I would argue in most cases your only hope, is to file a plaintiff's lawsuit to quiet title with some associated valid cause of action, which, which certainly can include wrongful foreclosure because this is a post-auction situation. I'm not saying you would always include that, but typically you could, case by case. And then once that's launched, 
you try to consolidate the UD into the main action. And, of course, your basis for doing that is, look, the UD proceeding is not going to really look at my title issues. The main, the main plaintiff's case I have going should look at them and will look at them. Therefore, the court should consolidate the UD into the plaintiff's action. I mean, that's, that's still available to this, this litigant, potentially. I, I think there's going to be a really close timeline because everything happened so quickly in unlawful detainer court. So, you know, ideally, when you're in this situation, you file a motion to quash and a demur first. I'm not, again, I'm not saying that that should always be done. It's case by case, but it's available. Good information. We answered one question, and now we're out of time. Thank you, Charles Marshall, for joining me again, and thank you all for uh, listening. And we'll be back with you after Thanksgiving. Have a good holiday. Yes, we will. You too. Thanks for listening to our broadcast. We hope that you tell your friends about us and let them know that there is hope and help in this financial crisis. Tune in every week to The Neil Garfield Show for free information and advice and visit our blog daily at The Living Lies Blog. We provide support services, the latest strategies, analysis, expert consultations, testimony and declarations to use in your battle against the largest economic crime in human history. For information concerning Neil, the team at Living Lies, or the law firm, go to www.livinglies.wordpress.com or call 520-405-1688. The opinions expressed on this broadcast are those of the host and should not be attributed to any other person or entity.